0: Right, we are uh, in Exodus chapter 2, and uh, we left off um, last week, we did Exodus 1, so there you go, that's moving our way through Exodus. Uh, what we'll see today as we go through this chapter, uh, normally I, I like to have just like kind of one point when I'm teaching, right? And it's like, this is kind of the one thing from the text that I want us to capture. This, ch- Exodus chapter 2 was, was, it's so big, and there's so much there So what you're going to have to do is a little bit of work for yourself in terms of what is the Holy Spirit going to be saying to you and what is your takeaway from this passage as we're working through Exodus chapter 2. Because what we're going to see as we begin Exodus chapter 2 is what what the author is doing is the author is pulling out stories from Genesis and the author is retelling them in the Exodus story story. He's leaving little hints. And so I don't know about you, but when I watch movies, one of the things I love are the Easter eggs, the little clues or throwbacks or hints that that are hidden in the movie to to remind you of other things. Like this one is really good. It's uh, Indiana Jones. He's opening up the Ark of the Covenant. And what you can see is in the hieroglyphs on the side is a little R2D2 and C3PO. Right? And so hidden into the Indiana Jones movie made by George Lucas is this other famous little, just little, it's, why is it there? Just for fun. It's a, a little throwback to his other set of movies. And so what we're going to see is like those, like those Easter eggs in a movie, the author of Exodus is leaving little Easter eggs to call our minds back to the story of Genesis. It's a way of seeing that the whole Bible does tell this one grand story. It's a way of reminding us of the way that that God acts with consistency and faithfulness throughout the whole story. And so just as God acts consistently and faithfully in Genesis, so God will act consistently and faithfully in Exodus. And so for those with eyes to see, with good memory, back into Genesis, we will see these little Easter eggs, these little clues. And so this teaching sermon this morning is an Easter egg hunt. And I hope that as we do this, you will be encouraged and you will think about God's invitation to you and how God might be speaking to you in your particular situation, given what God has done in the past. And so... Exodus chapter one ended with this chilling command of Pharaoh to his people. Exodus one ended with throw every baby boy, every baby boy born of the Hebrews into the Nile River, but you can let the, all the girls live. And so the immigrant blaming, the fear mongering has reached its crescendo. All of Egypt is recruited into this final solution. This minority group, through a state-sponsored genocide, will happen through the act of infanticide. Just imagine the tremor of fear that must have run through every Hebrew household, through every pregnant Israelite woman. I wonder how much zeal the Egyptians had to, to let out their anger at the foreigner and the immigrant. Finally, someone to blame. Finally, the permission to let out my anger. Was this Egypt's own Kristalnach? The night of broken glass? I have to say, on on one hand, reading that story, it it seems so foreign, so distant, so barbaric. My privileged life makes it hard to imagine that this is even possible. And yet... Maybe our culture is not so different than that of Egypt. The 10-year period up until the 1970s and a 10-year period up until the 1970s, it was estimated that uh, 1,150 Indigenous women were sterilized in hospitals after giving birth. In June 2021, a Senate committee was still meeting and talking about their deep concern that Indigenous women and other vulnerable, marginalized groups in Canada are being affected by forced or coerced sterilization. This is not something of the past, but something that continues to happen here in our culture. The racism, the prejudice that underpins Pharaoh's edict and the people's enthusiastic response is still alive in our world today. And it's not even in some of those more distant countries in which genocide and ethnic cleansing are current or lived uh, or recent memory experiences, but they are also present, if perhaps slightly more hidden, within our own culture, our own hearts. And if we're willing to look closely and to let the light of God's justice shine on us, perhaps we also recognize that we have work to do as well. That it's not so distant. Chapter 2 begins like this. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. So we hear that a Levi, man from the tribe of Levi marries a woman from the tribe of Levi, and that's important because later the Levites will be the mediators of God's presence. So it's already setting Moses up for what he's about to do. And then we come to the very first Easter egg. It says that the child was born, and she saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful. Or in Hebrew, the word is tov. Uh, It's found in the creation story seven times when God looked at creation and saw that it was tov, saw that it was good. And the mother looks at the child, and she says, this child is good. And so Pete Entz says The mother's words are not a random physical description of Moses, but a not so subtle hint that this boy and his journey will be tied to the story of creation. And so, this creation story, this beautiful boy is born, and through this child that the mother sees as good, God is going to bring about a new creation, a new people. He's going to set them free. And God is working in recreation. Exodus 2 continues, verse 3. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket, set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank, and the baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Probably of all of Exodus 2, this is the line that has stuck out to me the most. As I've sat and as I've considered this passage, the pictured the, what's happening in this, these verses, I imagine the mother preparing a reed basket, heating the tar, sealing her child into a black tomb. Unable to hide her son. Unable to watch her son hauled from her home and thrown into the Nile. Unable to bear the thought of watching her son die. She prepares what for her must have felt like a tomb. She buries her son and leaves. She sealed the child up in toss. This little boy's sister stands at the distance to see what will happen. Will it be the current that takes him away? Will it be a hippo? A crocodile? What end will her little brother meet? The mother cannot bear to watch. She leaves. The NRSV says his sister stood at a distance. I don't want us to rush too quickly past this part of the story to get too caught up in the rescue. Because before the rescue comes a death. Before the rescue comes the waiting, the uncertainty, the fear, the sadness, the hopelessness. And if we skip through the agony to experience of rescue, we will expect that in our own lives. We will be then caught unaware in our own waiting, in our own uncertainties, in our own fear and sadness and hopelessness. You need to remember the water in the Hebrew consciousness spoke of death and chaos. The waters of the Nile are a graveyard for Israelite boys. Water symbolizes the chaos, the destruction, the waters are the symbol of the chaotic, unlivable deep that God divided in half at the creation of the world and unleashed again in the story of Noah and the destructive waters. But this also leads us to Easter egg number two. Because while the story feels sad and hopeless and uncertain, the author has left for us another clue. Because Moses is placed in a basket and the Hebrew word is teva. And it's only used one other time in the Hebrew scriptures for ark. Another boat that is covered in pitch in which God uses a way to rescue and start something new. In Genesis 6-9, Noah builds this ark. Both Moses and Noah are kept safe from the hostile waters by an ark basket. And like Noah, Moses is the focal person for a new beginning a new people. And so Pete Entz writes, Moses' birth and the story of Exodus as a whole are wrapped up in a much larger story of new beginnings. How does God work? God makes new beginnings out of what seems like chaos and death. There's another Easter egg. I'm not going to spend much time here just simply to point out that there is actually a really large comparison to be made, especially in Exodus 1 and 2, to that of the story of Hagar. And uh, in Genesis, Abraham's uh, Egyptian slave woman. um, And we can talk about that some other time. But there's a a lot of parallels between the story of Hagar and the story of Israel. Moving on. Verse 5. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and while her woman servants walked alongside the river, she saw a basket among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and the baby was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter agreed. Yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child, nurse it for me, and I will pay you for your work. So the woman took the child, nursed it, and after the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son, and named him Moses because I pulled him out of the water. Once again in the story of Exodus women take the central stage. They are the key figures, the ones in whom God uses to bring salvation for Moses and later the people of Israel. It is a way in which women take center stage in the rescue of Moses and it is I just love the way the Bible subverts our expectations about who will do what. And so here, once again, God is using the unexpected people to carry out his plan. Once again, God uses the powerless to undo the powerful. And don't you just love Moses' sister in this story? She's so, I don't know what the right word is, but she just jumps right into the story. She inserts herself in. She takes action on the heart. I wonder what happens in Pharaoh's daughter. She sees this baby, and what's going through her mind? She must feel sorry for him. She shows an awareness of what her father has commanded regarding Hebrew boys. But then perhaps she is now stealing herself, shutting off her empathy, uh, getting ready to put the baby back in the basket and float him down the chaotic, dangerous river when Moses' sister steps forward and puts another idea into her head. Do you want me to find somebody to feed it? I think sometimes we can let our own family experience impact the way we read the story. One of the possible timelines for the story of Exodus would would have the the pharaoh of the time being Ramses II. And we know from Egyptian sources that Ramses II had 59 daughters. So it's not like our house where one of my daughters might you know, adoptive little boy, and I would know about it. I mean, 59 daughters, multiple sons, many wives, harems. It's quite possible, I would think, that Moses and Pharaoh never even met. That Moses just lived with his daughter in a different place. Uh, Rabbi Joseph Talushkin writes, Remarkably, the greatest enemy of the Hebrew and their greatest friend are father and daughter. Isn't that an interesting piece to the story? Rabbi Joseph points out later, he says, salvation came about through Pharaoh's daughter. It would be as if a contemporary Jews believed that the Holocaust ended because of a child of Hitler. It is a radical story of the powerless undoing the powerful. There's simply no doubt that God's work of salvation comes from unexpected places and people. And perhaps this should alert us both to those for whom we are called to have pity on, like Pharaoh's daughter experienced when seeing Moses, but also alert us to the unexpected places in which God may be trying to speak to you and offer you rescue and hope. So don't dismiss too quickly the strange places that God likes to let the Spirit run. Salvation comes from unexpected places, and people, Perhaps even from the daughter of your greatest enemy. We don't hear much more about Moses' life as a child. Sometime when he's three or four years old, he's taken out into Pharaoh's household. He leaves behind his older brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam, his mom, his dad, and he is raised into a home as, with Pharaoh's daughter. So we skip then to his adult life. One day after Moses became an adult, He went out among his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked around to make sure that no one else was there, and he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out two days. I'm going to paraphrase here. He went out two days later. He sees Hebrews fighting each other. They have a little bit of a scuffle. He finds out that he was heard. Moses runs away because Pharaoh tries to kill him. Then one day Moses was sitting by a well and there was a Midianite priest who had seven daughters. The daughters come and there's a scuffle with the shepherds and Moses comes and saves them again. Last Easter egg. One day Moses was sitting by a well. Wells are places in the Bible where what seems like a chance encounter is rarely just luck. It would seem that God likes to bring people together at wells. And so, as a side note, I just wanted to let you know that I've decided to write a book. I'm calling it Find Your Spouse, The Biblical Way by Nathan (laughs) McCorkendale. It is a uh, biblical guide to finding love and marriage. Um, It's very simple. The biblical principles are build a well and then sit by the well and wait for somebody to come and uh, draw water for you. That's all it takes. Um, If you get some sheep or camels, that also helps. It, 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 does, it does make it more effective if you have sheep and camels, but the key is building a well. So I just want you to look for it in uh, everywhere fine books are sold as soon as I get around to writing it. But it should write itself. Um, Sitting by a well, he meets his wife. It reminds us of Isaac, of Jacob, those who have had these chance encounters at well. They meet their wives. The author is signaling for us that Moses is like the great heroes of Genesis. And as the reader, we are invited to take a deep breath of anticipation at what God is going to do next. God has a plan, and so we are sitting here. Moses is interesting, and I want us to close with looking at the heart of Moses. One of the things we see in these three encounters with Moses as an adult man before God begins to work with him is that one of the things we see is that Moses is a man who simply cannot stand to see injustice. He's always willing to side with the vulnerable and the oppressed. We see in these three encounters a burning passion to see people set free. And if God It's like God placed in him the seeds of liberation that would one day make him the tool that God will use to set the people free. We know that despite being raised in Pharaoh's household, he still identifies himself as a Hebrew. They are his people, as you read Exodus 2. Maybe it is the experience of being an outsider adopted into the Egyptian household, but his identity is clearly mixed. In his eyes, he sees himself as a Hebrew. To the Midianite daughters, he is an Egyptian. He is a man without a people and without a home. Rabbi Joseph says, The Bible is teaching us that a true prophet of God is concerned with all types of injustice, not just that against his own people. That is is why Moses intervenes when an Egyptian oppresses a Hebrew, when a Hebrew acts immorally, and when non-Hebrews oppress other non-hebrews moses just had to flee from pharaoh because of his act on behalf of the oppressed lost his home lost his status lost his family he's wandering in a foreign land and as soon as he encounters injustice again in the case of shepherds oppressing and working against the midianite women he steps in and does it all over again it doesn't matter for him whether it is Hebrew and Midianite, woman or man, slave or free. Moses will choose justice for the oppressed over self every single time. Moses' timing was off. His methods needed refining. But I think that Moses' character maybe was not yet ready. Right? Moses needed 40 more years of silence and preparation with the sheep before his heart was ready for the work that God had prepared for him. But already, in the heart of Moses, a heart that was not indifferent to the suffering of those around him, God looked at Moses and his heart and his passion, and he said, here is someone that I can work with. And then, like we said last week, Moses must learn to be faithful in the small acts of loving his wife, raising his son tending to sheep little by little faithfully until his heart is ready and until the time is right for God to save the Hebrew people. And that brings us to the end of Exodus 2. Well, not quite. Next week we'll look at the last few verses. But that's the story of Moses with all sorts of Easter eggs and little pieces in which God invites us to look for the way that God is reaching out. I want to just take a moment. I know it's, we're running a little long, but I do want to just ask, is there some part of that that just spoke to you or where you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you or you want to say something um, in response to that sermon? I believe I got a text saying that somebody's about to start digging their well, so that's excellent. Well done.